So let me ask this question. If you were looking to get a message out to the world, I'm over here, by the way, right? Like this big dorky guy sitting in the middle. Everybody's like, where in the world is he coming from? If you're looking to get a message, a really important message out to the world, I want you to think about for a moment the, the medium and the method that you would use to get that message out. I mean, in our, in our day and age, the possibilities really are endless. I mean, you could send a text, right? That's quick. That's convenient. Maybe you would choose an email. That's the way to go for you. Maybe you would choose a large billboard on a very busy road or a very busy street. The media in its varied forms would be a really great choice, whether it be TV, radio, newspaper, the internet. What about social media? Social media and the way that it's growing in our world, with people flocking to those platforms. That's the most effective, that's the most efficient way to cast a brand, a vision, to market a compelling vision. But I want you to think for a moment, whether it's TV, whether it's newspaper, whether it's the internet, whether it's a text or a video call or an email, do you see what each one of those mediums is missing? It's missing a personal touch isn't it? And and here's my premise this morning. My premise is this. It's my point of everything that I'm going to say this morning. A a message is only as good as its method of delivery. I mean, you could have the most compelling message possible, but if you deliver it in a really bad way, it doesn't matter what that message is. Your message is only as good as its method of delivery. What, What do I mean by that? Quite simply, A message can have good news, a message can have good intentions, but my belief is that if a a message is is really messed up in the way that you deliver it, it doesn't matter. A message that's delivered in person trumps any other form of media or or medium 100% of the time. I mean, mean, think about it for a minute. If if I were to deliver this message this morning and I said, hey, I've got a great idea, Levi, can you help me out? I'm just going to record myself reading this sermon, and I'm just going to play it this morning. That wouldn't play very well, would it? I mean, you're like, okay, that's great. He might have some cool truth in there, but it doesn't really mean much. Or or maybe if I had the great idea, instead of just doing audio, I'd also put a video with. I always kind of joke that there's going to be one day where I'm just going to Skype myself in. I'm going to like video call myself in from home and be like, I'm here to do the sermon today. And that would be like a step better, wouldn't it, right, to have a video with it? But it still would lack a little bit of luster, right? Because, again, a message is only as effective as the personal nature that's attached to that message. That's why I'm sitting here in the middle of this room this morning. Seems kind of silly. Like, why in the world is he just sitting there? That stool, somebody just asked me, why is there a stool that I just almost tripped over? Oh, probably was it like a fire hazard, Dan. We probably shouldn't do this again. But why, why would I do that? That's why I sit here this morning. I'm... I'm, I'm I'm among you. I'm dwelling with you this morning. You see, there's something, there's something that happens when I move from that stool among you and I go up on this stage. It doesn't matter how compelling I am, how much I try to be relatable in the things that I say and do, but when I move from right there to up here, something happens. A distance is created between myself and you, the audience. 
Maybe some of you saying, you know, I really don't want, I really don't need you in my personal space, Ryan. But, but I want us to admit for a moment this morning and for us to understand, isn't it just nice to have a personal touch? Isn't it just nice to have a person right there in front of us that we could touch, that we could see with our own two eyes, rather than just some informal way of getting a message across? Nothing beats the personal touch. And in our scripture for this morning, God gets about as personal as he can get. He invades personal space. He pops the social bubble. And he answers that cell phone too. That's all right. I don't even know what song it was, but hopefully it was good. I really don't know. He pops that bubble just like that right there. And he comes to be among his people, to dwell with his people. And guys, the truth of that couldn't be any greater news for us. John chapter 1, if you have your Bibles, is, we're going to continue this morning. We've spent now three weeks in John chapter 1, working kind of verse by verse. And we come to this verse this morning, and it is it. This is the verse that everything is built on in John chapter 1. This is the verse that everything that we celebrate right now at Christmas time is built on. And it simply says this, and I'm only going to read the very first part of it. John chapter 1, verse 14 says this. And so the word became human. And he made his home among us. Those words right there, guys, are so powerful. I was just sharing with my Sunday school class this morning that, you know, we come to Christmas time and we come to a little baby in a manger and we kind of, like, we get that, we understand that, we've heard that story before, it's, it's played a million times, Ryan, but do we really get that? That Jesus stepped down out of heaven and he took on us. Every part of us, without sin, he knows what it's like to be us. And we've spent the last couple of weeks talking about the significance of Christ coming to earth. We spent all of last week talking about Christ taking our place on the cross and what we termed the great exchange. And as significant and as impactful as that one moment is, it never happens unless Jesus takes on humanity and comes to dwell among us in the form of of a baby. And I've always had this inner tension, and I, I hear this question a lot, and I hear it debated a lot. Like, what, what really is the most important? That Jesus was born, or that Jesus died? And I've just kind of thought that myself as well. And I've arrived at the answer, and the answer is this. Yes. Yes. They, they are both equally significant as we sit here in this room this morning. But since we've already talked about Christ's death and what that accomplished for all mankind, I want to hone in today and I want to talk about God becoming a man, taking on us, dwelling among us in the flesh, or what's theologically known as, here's the big word, incarnation. And we've been bouncing around this topic for the last couple of weeks, but it is the central aspect, the central element of the entire Christmas story it's about a God who would step down and become a baby and become a man. And it's not that just he came 
as light into a dark world. It's that he came and he took on flesh and blood and he made his home among us, as John would say here in chapter 1. And guys, I can't say it any other way. I wish I could like make some flowery language. That is significant. I mean, if, that, if you just think about that and it doesn't move you, you may not be breathing. Again, Jesus steps down and takes all of it upon himself. In fact, the writer of Hebrews would put it this way in Hebrews chapter 1. He says this about this idea of the incarnation. He says, long ago God spoke many times and he spoke in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And then catch this. But now, or and now, in these final days, he has spoken to us through his Son. I love that message. That is significant. What's John? What, what is John trying to say? What is the writer of Hebrews trying to say to us? What are they urging us to grasp when John writes here in chapter 1, he became human. And I think the message, and it's again, I, I wish that I could put it in like really great, great language and be like, oh, here's a really catchy phrase for you. But I only have this to say about what they're trying to get us to understand. And I think... We really do miss this sometimes. You ready? I'm going to lay it on you. Big truth. God has come. He, he's, not, he's not out there. He's not uninterested in what we have going on in our lives, but He is right here in our midst. At an early church council that was convened for the very specific purpose of giving words to this most unexplainable event, you could imagine if you really consider the incarnation and you were back in the very early days of the church and you would look at each other and be like, guys, how in the world, how in the world are we going to say this? How in the world are we going to put this so that people will be able to kind of begin to wrap their minds around it? And they, and they said it this way. That at a particular point in history, God the Son, the second person of the Holy Trinity, took on a human nature, and, and then catch this, he took on a human nature without subtracting from himself any of his divine attributes. And I know that you sit there and you think, and if you think about it long enough, you're like, I don't, that doesn't, does not compute. It doesn't work. Those two things don't go together. How in the world could Jesus take on in himself 100% humanity? He was 100% man, but he did not at the same time lose any of his godness. He was 100% God. And one person, those two things, dwell. I believe when we grasp the truth and the weight of this one thing, of the incarnation, it changes everything about the way that we approach God and that we live our life. Guys, in Him, in Jesus Christ, the whole fullness of God is pleased to dwell. And it's not just one moment in time in a little town outside of ancient Israel, but it is for all eternity that all the fullness of God will dwell in Jesus Christ. Christ. Colossians chapter 1, 19 speaks pointedly to this. Colossians 1 says, For God in all his fullness, not just some of it, not just parts of it, not that he just took things away when he came to earth, all his fullness was pleased to live 
in Christ. Hebrews 1.3, we read verses 1 and 2 in Hebrews chapter 1, but here's what verse 3 says. The sun, I, I love this imagery. I love this line. The sun radiates God's own glory, and he expresses the very character of God. But how? How in the world could this happen? I mean, it's almost more than the mind can take in and process. And, and do you know what? That's okay. It's okay for us to wrestle with such an incomparable, unexplainable, divine moment. If we try to explain in every bit and fashion and facet of what in the world took place in the incarnation, and many people have attempted to do that, I think what it just does when we try to explain it is it just strips the majesty, and it strips the glory, and it strips the mystery of the moment. In fact, Martin Luther himself, the German pastor and church reformer, said this very simply, the mystery of the humanity of Christ, that he sunk himself into our flesh, is beyond all human understanding. Guys, the incarnation is a, is a deep mystery. For we can't fully understand how God could take on humanity without giving up any of his deity, his godness. And his coming to be among us, our Savior did not surrender even one of his divine attributes, such as his ability to know all or his power, though he did veil them. Without giving up his glory, he chose not to fully exercise his abilities and his godness to all who saw him walk on earth. There's a book we've been talking, actually, for the last few weeks about a seminar we're doing in February called Four Chair Discipling. The guy who wrote the book's name is Dan Spader, and in, in that book, Four Chair Discipling, he uses very interesting language to talk about this idea. And he says it this way, that Jesus did not dip into his deity. I mean, think about that for a moment. Now, if I'm, if I'm Jesus and I've come to earth and I need something taken care of, you better believe I'm going to dip in to my godness. Jesus didn't do that one single time. Didn't dip into his God-given abilities and his nature. To help clarify this veiling or this masking that Jesus does, Spader uses a very interesting idea. I want you to think about it this way. Imagine a credit card. I want you to imagine Jesus carrying that card. It is actually the ultimate master card. It is the God card. There's nothing more powerful than this card. The expiration date is eternity. The credit limit is infinity, for he owns it all and he has made it all. Jesus had the God card while he was living on earth because he was fully God while he was here on earth. But in order to be like us, he chose not to use it and he veiled his Godness by taking on humanity. Think about that for just a minute. If you could think in your mind, how in the world could Jesus not really make his godness go away, but veil and mask his godness? Do you know what he does to do that? He takes on us. Doesn't that say a whole lot about the weight of our humanity? That it would, it would be able to veil and to mask his deity, his godness. Love what 1 Timothy 3.16 says about this concept of the Incarnation, Paul is writing to Timothy, and he says, without question. 
This is the great mystery of our faith. Christ was revealed in a human body. Even Paul himself struggled with that idea and found it to be a mystery. But guys, for all of the head scratching about the incarnation, God taking on flesh, we can understand this. The incarnation reveals God's infinite love and grace towards us. He didn't leave us alone in our sin, but he entered into the misery of this fallen world without becoming a sinner himself in order to rescue us from hopelessness and to rescue us from doom and despair and lostness. Guys, the reality and the value of the incarnation cannot be understated. In fact, if we miss the incarnation, we miss everything else. We miss Christmas. So important is the incarnation to the understanding of Christianity and to the activity of our being saved that John said this in his first letter, and these are striking words to me. In 1 John chapter 4 and verses 2 and 3, John says this, this is how we know if someone has a spirit of God. This is how we know that somebody's really, truly following after God. If a person claiming to be a prophet acknowledges that Jesus Christ came in a real body, catch it there. This is the test case for if somebody is truly speaking on God's behalf. That person has a spirit of God and is from God. But if someone claims to be a prophet and does not acknowledge the truth about Jesus, that person is not from God. That's fascinating to me. That that was the test case, not only for John, but that was a test case for the early church to know if somebody was truly speaking from God. If someone was truly living for God. I mean, I mean, consider this. I mean, let's walk this back a little bit and think about what John is really saying in his words in John chapter 1. I want to break this down in this simple idea that has a massive effect. He says, the word became human and he made his home among us. In other translations, it would say that he dwelt among us. Literally what that means there in John 1.14 is that he pitched his tent, is what the language is actually there in John 1.14. And when you think about pitching a tent and you think about any sort of tent uh, or any sort of dwelling uh, that would happen in the Bible, what do you think of? Anybody? I go all the way back to the Old Testament. I think of the tabernacle. The tabernacle was simply a tent. That's all it was. A tent that the Israelites would set up and it would, it would house God's presence. And then when they were ready to move to the next location, and God said, let's go to the next location, they would take that tent down and they would pack it up. Although I don't probably believe it was as easy as our little pole tents that we have today that just go. No, they had to tear that thing down and put it all away. And they'd have to walk to where they were going and put that thing all back up again. That's what I think of when I think about pitching his tent. God came to meet man in the most personal way imaginable here in John 1.14 through his son. There was no tabernacle. There was no temple where God's presence dwelt. It was through his son. And when Jesus comes to earth, when John tells us here in verse 14, Jesus wasn't here on this earth for a quick drive-by saving. He was, he was setting up shop. He was settling in so that he could fully capture the human experience and he could become like us. That is such an important phrase. Talked about this morning with my Sunday school class. Why did Jesus come to earth? What was his mission? And his mission was very simply this. To become like us. 
so that he could die for us. Guys, few statements in all of Scripture are as profound and as powerful as the opening to verse 14. The Word became human. The Word became flesh. Took on flesh. Came in flesh. The Latin word for it is incarnate. That's where we get the word incarnation from. He put on skin. Theologian J.I. Packer in his pivotal book, Knowing God, piles on to the importance of the incarnation when he says this. The significance of the cradle at Bethlehem is the sequence of steps that led God, the Son of God, to the cross of Calvary. The taking of manhood by the Son is set before us in a way which shows how we should truly view it, how we should truly view God coming to earth, the incarnation. It's not simply as a marvel of nature, but rather it's a wonder of grace and mercy and love. I, I, I've said it many times before, my favorite section of Scripture is Philippians chapter 2, 5-11 through 11 specifically, but Philippians 2, 7 falls within that, and it says this. this. This is beyond me to understand. He, Jesus, gave up His divine privileges. I, I don't know about you, but probably every one of us in this room, I'm almost believing 100% of us in this room, have some sort of a right and privilege to something or some things that we would not be willing to give up. And those things pale into, in comparison to what Jesus gave up in his divine privileges. Perfect fellowship with God the Father and the Spirit. He gave up his divine privilege and he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being when he appeared in human form. Guys, the incarnation is grace personified. And grace is the tenor of the next verse in the closing part of John's opening of the gospel. I told you very first week, verses 1 through 18 are only the setup for the entire gospel, and that's where we've set for the last three weeks. He says in the second part of verse 14, not only did he become human, not only did he make his home among us, but catch this, he was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. He was full of grace and mercy and love. We have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. Verse 16 says, from his abundance we have all received one gracious blessing, after another, another translation puts it this, we have received grace upon grace upon grace because of his coming to this world. Guys, that's what the incarnation is about. It's about grace and glory. Glory and grace. And in the Old Testament, the glory of God rested, what I've already talked about, in the tabernacle and later in the temple. And when that happened, when that cloud descended on the tabernacle, when it descended on the temple, that was God's greatness seen visibly by the Israelites. But what the Jews witnessed was only partial, and it was an incomplete picture of God's glory. And the unthinkable truth of John 1.14 is that when Jesus comes to earth to dwell among us, the world witnessed the glory of God in all its fullness. If you saw Jesus in that day, you saw God the Father. You saw the face of God. And he says this line, we have received grace upon grace from his fullness. 
the faithfulness of God to keep His promises, the grace of God to rescue His people is found in its full expression in Jesus coming to this earth. John is essentially saying to this when he writes here in John chapter 1, when he writes in verse 14, you think that Israel saw the greatness and the power and the grace of God? You haven't seen anything yet. The grace of God was seen everywhere the shadow of Jesus fell. It was seen in every Old Testament system. It was seen in every Old Testament celebration and sacrifice. But when Jesus came, those shadows didn't matter anymore because the light of Jesus had flooded in and revealed completely what the shadows had only hinted at. And then we get this line in John 1.18. It ends the prologue here, the introduction to the entire gospel. No one has ever seen God. But the unique one, Jesus himself, who is himself God, is near to the Father's heart. And then catch this. Don't miss this line. This is such a very important line. He has revealed God to us. The word revealed here in chapter 18 is an extremely rare and very specific word. It's used actually only six times in the rest of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. And it carries this meaning. When he talks about being revealed, it means that the whole story has now been told. Isn't that cool? Jesus has revealed God to us, and it's almost like John is saying, guess what? Now the story is finished in Jesus Christ coming to this world. Guys, Jesus is the pinnacle. He is the crowning achievement of the gospel story that God began telling at the fall. See, the gospel doesn't just start here. The gospel starts all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve sin, sin enters into this world and God says, guess what? I'm already starting to make things right. I already have good news. And where that story starts after the fall, in Jesus, the full story is being perfectly and fully told. Jesus came and he lived among people to show us the true face of God. And guys, that is why it is absolutely imperative for us to truly understand who Jesus is. Because Jesus shows us exactly who God is. Jesus' primary desire was, and it still is today as we sit here, to give glory to the Father by revealing the Father's glory. Jesus wanted to help us cut through all of the fog, all of the misunderstanding, all of the confusion, and he wanted to give us a very clear picture of who God was in all his fullness. Every single thing that he does in his ministry, every single moment of his life is only to reveal to us who God truly is. The incarnation is the infleshing of the word, God's word, his personality, his nature, and it's made real and it's made relatable to us in Jesus Christ. In the book of Exodus, Moses hears the divine name spoken by God himself. You remember when Moses says, I wanted to see your glory, God. And God says, that's great and wonderful, Moses, but you will die if you see me. And so I'm going to pass in front of you and you're only going to see part of me. And as God passes by Moses, he reveals his name to Moses. And he speaks his name to Moses. He self-reveals to Moses. Moses further receives God's written word on two stone tablets. The the Ten Commandments is what we call them. 
Guys, Moses had encounters with God in a way that no one else in Scripture could boast. Magnificent encounters with God. I mean, he goes into the tent of meeting, it says, one day, and he comes back out and it said, he, he shone with the glory of God so brightly that the Israelites couldn't even look at Moses. I mean, I don't know about you, but I've never really stepped into a room and I prayed to God and I came out and my family goes, whoa, can't even take it, man, because you're so bright. You're radiating God's glory. Moses does that. That is fantastic. It's fabulous. But here's the deal. In Jesus, God gives us his greatest self-revelation. Anything that Moses experienced, the greatest things that Moses experienced pale in comparison to Jesus Christ revealing God to us. His very self-expression is made known in the arrival of Jesus to the earth, in the flesh. This is the peak of self-revelation. There is no greater source, there is no greater object to reveal the Father to us than Jesus himself. But here's the deal. At some point, the Christmas story and the truth of the incarnation needs to move beyond theory. It needs to be made practical in our lives. And, and to help with that practicality, I want you to consider this idea this morning. And I, this kind of hit me like a ton of bricks when I heard it this week. I was reading a book by a, a guy named Hugh Halter, and it's called Flesh. It talks all about, in depth, the incarnation and what the incarnation means for us today. And I want you to think about this. Is it possible that one of Jesus' biggest reasons for coming to this earth, for taking on flesh, human? You're like, wait a minute, Ryan, wait a minute. I mean, doesn't the Bible say that we like, want to be like Jesus? We want to be like God? We want to be holy as he is holy? Well, yeah, it does say that. But I also think Jesus comes, and I think a big reason that he comes is it says, this, this is how a human lives. This is what full humanity looks like on display as Jesus lives here on this earth. In the book Flesh, Hugh Halter says this, Jesus didn't come, he didn't just come to die for your sins or to be born as a baby. He came to teach each and every one of us how to live a life in the flesh. See, guys, Jesus coming to show us a path to true humanity is not just a, po a possibility. It's not just a what if. It's a reality, and it's a very biblical truth. The incarnation is amazing not simply because of the way it happened. It's amazing because of why it happened. And why is the key? Again, Hugh Halter says the story of the incarnation is a God who left divine utopia and came into a cesspool of brutal, brutal human misery. Why? This is it. Why does he do this? Because of people. People matter. You matter. God's reason for coming in the flesh, dwelling among us, better yet, sending his beloved son in the flesh, is because of us. It's because of me. It's because of you. It's because it's world. Guys, the incarnation is not about theory or doctrine or theology. It's about emotion. God so desperately wanted us back. Jesus Christ came because he wants 
everything back the way that it was. That's his true purpose. That's his true mission. He wants everything back the way that it was. The incarnation, therefore, is not just a formula. It's not some neat trick that Jesus does. But it's about remembering what home used to be like and making a plan to get back to there. British writer Dorothy Sayers comments on the incarnation with these words. The incarnation means that for whatever reason, God chose to let us fall. I don't know. I think it was Steve Jones in, in Sunday school today was saying, why, like, why? Why did evil have to enter this world? Why in the world would God put evil in the garden? It's a discussion for another day, and I don't even think we could ever get to the end of that. But for some reason, God chose to let us fall, to suffer, to be subject to sorrows, to be subject to death. And here's the really big truth, though. He has nonetheless had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. He can expect nothing from man that he is not expected from himself. He himself has gone through the whole of human experience from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and the lack of money to the worst horrors and the pain, humiliation, defeat, despair, and death you could imagine. He was born in poverty and he suffered in infinite pain all of it for us. For this world. And I love the way that she ends it. And he thought it well worth while. Guys, the truth is that Jesus had it all at his fingertips. He had it all in the palm of his hands. All the greatness of being God, and yet he chose the way of the servant to become like us, wrapped up and burdened by our condition in order to know us and to know our struggles. This is the essence of the gospel story, the good news. And again, I said a little bit ago, I want to say it again, the coming of Jesus is not the beginning of the gospel story. But it is the next and arguably the most important chapter in the gospel. The Old Testament and the New Testament are not two different books that tell two different, or about two different subjects, but they're two parts of the very same story. All the promises made in the Old Testament and that are kept in the New Testament are part of what we know as the good news of the gospel. And in the person of Jesus Christ, the gospel is embodied. That's what he's talking about in John 1.14. And is it explained in John 1.14 through 18? That all the fullness of God, all of his glory and all of his grace and all of his goodness, Jesus has revealed that to us. And although the gospel is all over scripture from the fall to the exodus of men like Isaiah, Jesus is the ultimate embodiment of the gospel. He is the gospel in flesh. And guys, we can sit, and I, I think that sometimes what we do when we come to Christmas is we're like, all right, yes, Jesus was born as a baby. God stepped down and he came here to dwell among us and we marvel at that. And rightly so. We're like, oh, that is so amazing. But guys, we can choose to marvel at the incarnation or we can choose to be motivated by the incarnation. Here's another thought. Maybe the incarnation is less about something that we admire and it's more about a person who inspires us to be more present world that's around us. That's the beauty and that's the true meaning of incarnation 
and Christmas. Not to just be a Christian and to receive God's invitation to Christ, but to live incarnationally in the world that he is trying to redeem. The world that he has placed us in. The moment that he has put us in. Maybe that's truly what incarnation is about. That's the incarnation where every moment is filled with meaning. Every person you meet is made in God's image and is being restored to that standard. Where every second has the possibility of the kingdom breaking into this world and surprising us in baffling ways. That is the greatest news of all. Jesus was born and he lived a life that models for us what it truly means to be human. And his hope for us is that we will be human in the very best sense of the word. That we would go back to the beginning of all things and we would recapture what God has made us to be. Very good. Do you remember that in Genesis chapter 1? He says, I make man, I make them in our I see that they are very good. Guys, God doesn't want us to be God. God wants us, I believe, to be very human in the best sense of the term. He wants us to have compassion. He wants us to have love. He wants us to have decency. He wants us to have all of his goodness in our life that then filters out to the people or glory of God to anyone who happens to be watching our life. And not only does the incarnation matter in our lives, but we matter in God's kingdom built on incarnation. We enjoy God's goodness. We reflect that goodness. We point to God's glory in all that we do, becoming more and more like him by the tiniest of margins over time. I've talked about that before. Guess what? Like We don't need to make massive leaps and bounds in becoming more like Christ. It says in Scripture that just little by little, incrementally, and over time, we become something better than we ever imagined. And so here's my charge to you this morning as we talk about the incarnation. Let us dwell in this world. Let let us show some of our humanness, our emotion, what God has truly created us to be. Let Let us show some skin in the best sense of the word, all right? Don't take that the wrong way. It's really interesting to me that if you walk around, what, what is it that really reveals you to people? It's your skin, right? Skin is actually really vulnerable. It's really touchy. It's very sensitive. It's how people interact with us and know who we are. So the question that I have this morning is, what is your skin saying about you? What when people you about Christ? When people look your direction, do they see about the glory and the greatness of God? In this morning, I want to read Colossians chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. And it talks about this idea of glory and about grace. And it says this. This message, the message that we have talked about this morning, the message that we've been talking about for the last three weeks now, was kept secret for centuries and generations past, but now it has been revealed to God's people. For God wanted them to know that the riches and the glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too. It's for all of us. And this is the secret. And catch this. This is why I believe that the incarnation is not just about God coming to this earth and this. 
Christ lives in you. This gives you assurance of sharing in his glory. I love the way it says it in another translation. Christ in you, the hope of glory. I love that so much. That is the Christmas story. That is incarnation in its true sense.